0: Welcome to the Love Lab Podcast, a safe place to get real about sex. Whether you're a man, woman, single, or couple, this is the show for you. We are your hosts, Kevin Anthony and Celine Remy, and we are here to guide you to go from good
1: to amazing in the bedroom and beyond.
0: All right, welcome back to the Love Lab Podcast. This is episode 235 and it is titled The Biology of Sexuality and Penises from Around the World. Okay, I know those things don't really sound like they go together, but let me just explain. So I am experimenting with something new on this show, which is having guest hosts. So it's a little different than doing straight interviews as we have done on this show for many years. I really wanted to bring some people on from time to time just to get that dynamic going between two people. And it helps to have different points of views and different uh, areas of expertise to share on the show. And so this is the first episode where we are attempting that. And the person that will be co-hosting with me today, who will introduce herself in a moment, has a really interesting background. And, you know, when we were discussing what are we going to talk about on this show, she mentioned uh, something about penises from around the world. Apparently she's seen quite a few of them and it was just too interesting to not talk about since we have her on the show. So we're going to save that towards the end. We've got a lot more to talk about before we get there, but it was just too interesting to not talk about. So... What are we talking about today? We are talking about the biology of sexuality. And what do we mean by that? Well, what we really mean is so many people think that their sexuality, their desire for sex, how they show up during sex really is uh, sort of a product of their personality, more so than realizing that it is more, well, I don't know about more, but it is largely driven by their biology. And so we're going to dig into that and unpack that a little bit. But before we do that, a short word from our sponsor, Do you want to join the secret club of men who are great in bed? Then check out Power and Mastery. It is the most complete sexual mastery training for men. Whether you want to have harder erections, last longer, or increase your sexual skills, there is something for you at powerandmastery.com. So as you know, those are the online men's sexual mastery courses that Celine and I created. And they will teach you a ton, a ton of stuff. A little bit about biology, but mostly about what to really do when you show up in your relationship and in the bedroom. So go check that out, powerandmastery.com, powerandmastery.com. Okay, so today I have a guest host. Her name is Alicia, and I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell you all a little bit about her and her background. Hi,
1: I'm Alicia Deva. And I apologize for fanning myself, I'm in Mexico and it's hot as hell here. We don't really, I don't have AC or anything. Um, I, I'm a multidisciplinary researcher and thinker. I consider myself to have a science background, although I'm something of a scientific heretic because I dropped out of academia, um, neuroscience. I was, um, I graduated from Stanford. Uh, with human biology major, which was an interdisciplinary major with psychology, biology, animal behavior, and cognitive science. And so I, I called it consciousness. So I, I really um, have studied consciousness from a lot of different angles, um, archaeology, anthropology, basically the human animal as an animal, because it, it, it's been clear to me that we are actually animals and that we'd like to think of ourselves as rational beings, but we're actually walking around like Big bags of hormones that are driven by our biological urges. Um, So that's been. You and me, baby, nothing but
0: mammals, right? So let's do it like they do on the Discovery (laughs) Channel. You remember that song? (laughs) That's what you reminded me of. Well, I think then, based on what you just told the audience, that you are the right person to be talking about this subject with. All right, so let's just dive in. I mean, I gave kind of a little bit of an explanation at the beginning of the show about what we're talking about when we say the biology of sexuality, but maybe you could expand on that a little bit, maybe give a a little bit clearer explanation about like, what are we really talking about here when we're talking about the biology of our sexuality? So, you know,
1: we're... Human beings are, are driven by our, by our instincts, but we kind of, one thing I learned working with split brain patients um, in the lab is that we, we tend to kind of um, put logic around it and justify our behavior, um, but actually we're driven by both our hormones and our neurotransmitters. So we both have estrogen and testosterone. And of course, men have more testosterone, and women have more estrogen. Um, and the testosterone is really controls to a large degree our, our sense of horniness, um, and estrogen to a large degree our our sense of um, sort of female lushness, this kind of soft skin feeling, feeling juicy, you know juices in the vagina all of these things so those are controlled by those things and then there's oxytocin which is all about us us are sort of like love and affection for each other for our children for our partners um so those are sort of the the major hormones and then there's the neurotransmitters which in my research i found that in the first let's say six months of meeting someone it's it's the dopamine phase um so that's like it's like basically a coke binge it's like chemically identical to a coke binge, where you're just over the moon, you feel good all the time, you feel really motivated, you have tons of energy, and you're, ba- you're basically obsessing about this other person, and, and they're incredible. And at a certain point, that shifts, like maybe around six months, it's different from every couple, where if, if you decide the other person is basically not an axe murderer and is kind of compatible with you, your body shifts into serotonin mode which is kind of the in love, as opposed to the in infatuation mode. And this can last a couple years, depending on whether or not you live together, which if you live together, things tend to progress a lot faster. Um, The more space and time you have, the slower things go. I, I actually have something that I like to say, which is that every couple has kind of a finite number of ejaculations. And you can either like blow your wad really quickly or you can make it last a lifetime, you know, depending on how you how you sort of spin that 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 energy. Um, And then at a certain point, if you've been living together for a long time, let's say you've had children, you sleep together every night, you shift into oxytocin mode where you feel like a family. Like now there's this it's more of an affection and less of an in love feeling. Um, which this is different for everybody. And I think every couple has a different destiny and I think we can sort of, um, maintain these, these different phases, but I think it's, it's nature's way of getting us to, to breed. So the dopamine, you kind of are so infatuated with each other that you can't look at anybody else. Um, and so that's why I think a lot of people get pregnant at that, at that phase, um, because nature wants you to to get pregnant and have children while you still have this, this feeling of juiciness with each other. But I think it can be elongated with with certain forms of intimacy and and kind of kind of vital distance and and um, constantly recreating ourselves.
0: Yeah, so whew, okay, you covered a lot of ground there. I'd like to go back and maybe unpack a few of those things a little bit more. Um, Let's go back to the beginning and talk about um, sort of the role of the hormones. So you you mentioned that each of the major hormones has an effect. Let's start with estrogen and really talk about, you kind of mentioned it's what brings sort of the juiciness and the flow. But a lot of women don't realize, really until they start hitting menopause or, or even perimenopause, just how much that their estrogen level really affects how they show up as a woman. And so like one of the things that, you know, you'll see if you work with a lot of women who are in that, you know, we use the term menopause, but the reality is, is once you're menopaused, you're already done. So the correct term is technically perimenopause, but just, I don't want to confuse the audience too much. But this idea that when you are going through what we call menopause, which is really perimenopause, and your estrogen levels start to drop, suddenly, you know, you'll see things like uh, thinning of the vaginal wall. Women will start to experience more pain during sex. They'll be less motivated for sex because of that. So maybe you could add a little bit more to that discussion about like, hey, throughout your life, your estrogen levels will vary and how is that really affecting how you show up as a woman?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, I have, I guess maybe perhaps what, what is called estrogen dominance, which, which means that I had high levels of estrogen um, as did my mother and her twin sister, which meant that I had very intense PMS, like very intense irritability with my, at the beginning of my period. Um, and, had really intense sexual desire that did sort of wax and wane with my cycles. And then I'm, I'm consciously child free. So I didn't have children. Um, and perhaps I would, love to see more research on this. I, I, I feel like, you know, this is kind of a taboo subject for scientists to research. Um, but it would be, you know, especially around female sexuality, which is sort of so taboo. Um, but, I feel like perhaps because I didn't have children, at the end of my fertile period, which of course we never know that we're nearing the end of our fertile period, um, I became extremely needful of sex, and especially for young men. And um, I'd been in a relationship for 10 years um, with a man my age, and we would built a house together, which was incredibly intense, like it became this huge art project, this temple, And then we found that we were like brother and sister. And meanwhile, I was having such intense attractions to to young guys, because it seems that around the age of 32, men transition, unless they're extremely vital or they eat goat balls or they do tantric practices or something, they tend to transition to not being quite as that's horny all the time which must be a big relief for them I would imagine but it's it's such a dastardly trick of nature because that's around the same time that women are beco- really coming into their full sexuality um, perhaps out of a certain the body is kind of desperately let's you know let's make use of these last years and, and breed all we can phase um, so, so that did I really good.
0: Yeah, I just I just wanted to interject there for a second because the way that has been described to me from several doctors that we've had on the show, this idea that women get hornier as they get older and men get less horny as they get older, is that for women generally their estrogen levels will drop, but that leaves their testosterone levels pretty much the the same, and so the ratio of estrogen to testosterone is different so they women become more testosterone driven as they get older whereas men it's the opposite their testosterone levels are dropping but their estrogen levels are staying the same which is leaving them you know less dominated by their testosterone so what I find interesting about that is in your case though you were you were estrogen dominant and yet you were still experiencing that shift i find that interesting
1: yeah i mean i never tested my hormones until after menopause, um, so then I, I did. I think that contributed to the demise of my relationship, which was extremely traumatic because we had built this whole thing together. And I went to Thailand and I spent three months at Tantra School at Agama, this really major, huge Tantra institution. Um, and I was trained in Lingam Massage, and I ended up experiencing a lot of of. It's a very international island with people from all over the world. Um, So had young lovers and really got to live that out. And it was a little bit unsatisfying, honestly. Um, In some ways, I wish I could go back to to myself that was so horny at that time and say, you know what, in three years, you're actually not going to care that much. And you're kind of going to miss your partner that you had all of this stuff to talk about with. But it, it was what happened, and, and that happened, and then I went into perimenopause, and I you know, got very depressed and started to lose my sex drive a little bit, but at the same time, it was still pretty intense, and then finally stopped bleeding, and everything stayed the same for about two years. And then two years after my last period, all of my health issues, arthritis, body pain, um, anxiety, depression, thyroid issues surfaced. It's like estrogen is this water that flows over you. And, and when it goes away, like the sharp rocks of whatever are your ancestral health issues kind of poke to the surface. Um, and so I decided to go on bioidentical hormones and I got uh, the yes. pellet, you know,
0: that I want so so they, s- they to, yeah, go ahead. So I want to save that for a little bit further right. in the okay. show, but um, okay. so far, I, I'm really uh, loving hearing your story about what your personal experience was. And As we go through the show, you know, we're going to talk about like, you know, a little bit more about what happens when things get out of balance and what can you do about it. And so then I, I, that's when I want to really bring in like, how you handled that and what you did and, and how that made a difference. So I don't want to jump too far ahead just yet. Okay. But, but it, it is very interesting, your uh, experience and how those shifts in your hormones really changed how you showed up. And by the way, if you were listening, uh, uh, audience, if you were paying attention, I should say, um, notice she mentioned going to tantra school and getting trained in lingam massage, hence the penises from around the world, which we will get to a little bit later, because that's going to be a hysterical conversation, I think. Um, but i wanted to share since you know you were talking a little bit about your personal experience i'm going to share a little bit about mine as well so i am approaching 50 well i have another year and 3 months but <laughs> getting pretty close to 50 now and so yeah you know i've been experiencing shifts myself and you know they say that uh, for men once you hit 30 that your testosterone levels start dropping about 1% every year since then And kind of like I said earlier, that whole idea of women's estrogen levels dropping, leaving them more testosterone dominant, men's testosterone levels dropping, leaving them more estrogen dominant. Uh, Selena and I did a show a while back called something along the lines of, uh, she wants a quickie and he wants to cuddle. And the point of that was talking about that very shift that happens where all of a sudden she's just like, okay, I finally, I just want to fuck right? And then he's like, no, but I just, I, I want to talk and it'd be really nice to connect for a little while first. Whereas, you know, when we're younger as men, we're just like, take your clothes off, penetrate right away. Let's fuck, right? Like that's, that's basically what we want to do. And you said something also earlier about it must be such a relief for men. And to some extent, that's right. I have to say, I'm so far past that point in my life where everything was just about like trying to get laid, that I have a little bit of a hard time remembering what it was like, to be honest. But I do remember being young, you know, you're talking like maybe 18 to 30-ish, roughly, where, yeah, as a guy, your thoughts are pretty much consumed. I mean, when you're not busy like at school or work or whatever you're doing, pretty much everything else you're doing is trying to figure out how you can get a woman into bed. <laughs> and, you know, men get a bad rap for that. And I think part of what's interesting about it is, is I think you could have more compassion for men if you understood that that wasn't necessarily just their personality or toxic masculinity or anything like that, but really just being driven by their hormones. Like the perfect example of that is... I have a long, uh, long-time friend uh, who is a woman. She's always identified as kind of non-binary, long before non-binary was even a thing. You know, I mean, she, she she shows up in the world as a female, but she's, you know, been sort of 50-50 between having female lovers and, and male lovers. And about a year ago, I want to say it is, uh, for whatever Reason she decided that she wanted to go on uh, testosterone. And she will talk openly about how, since she's been on it, she just wants to fuck. Like that's what she, she's just like, and you know, she's she's uh, almost the same age as I am, right? So, but she's just like, she just wants lovers and she just wants to fuck. and she she clearly states that she feels an absolute difference. After having been on the testosterone. And so I just think it's really interesting when we're talking about our sexuality and how we show up in in the world and and what we want, what our desires are, how much of that really is driven by the levels that are flowing through our bodies and how those levels change, hence change what we want out of sex and relationship throughout our lives.
1: I definitely acquired a lot of compassion for men at that last phase of my cycle before I stopped leaving completely when that's all I wanted to. That's I thought about sex every five minutes, every five seconds, literally it was like I'd walk down the street and I could feel my yoni with every step. It was like I was, my yoni was like driving me forward and like uh, men could like smell me from their cars. <laughs> like they were shouting, like it was emanating pheromones <laughs> and then, that same thing happened when I started on the hormones. So, and then I thought, "Gosh, is this what eighteen-year-old boys deal with?" Like, I have so much compassion for them.
0: Now you know why the average eighteen-year-old boy is masturbating like four times a day.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do, and it was so unsatisfying. I felt like I wanted to like bite my arm. You know, it wasn't. It, it, that, that's not what I needed.
0: Yeah, it's definitely you know which which is something that you'll often hear certain groups say who don't want young people to have sex when they're young. They'll say, oh, well, I mean, a lot of them are against masturbation also. But the ones that aren't will say, well, just masturbate. And it's like, no, you know, that doesn't really do it. It's just not the same. So uh, stepping away from, you know, the estrogen, testosterone, and we didn't really get into progesterone, but that's okay. We've talked about that on the show many times. You also were talking about um, some of the um, the neurotransmitters that have effect, and that's another thing that I wanted to get into because we haven't talked a ton on this show about neurotransmitters. So maybe yeah. we could just revisit that for a moment, and you could kind of talk a little bit more about the oxytocin and um, and uh, after you do that, I wanna I wanna also talk a little bit about a pattern that Celine and I had recognized in relationships and how long they tend to last. And then we're going to match it up with what, what you're going to tell us about the neurotransmitters because there's a connection there.
1: Totally. And just to mention the progesterone, just to say real quick about that, I, you know, that is part of my um, hormone regimen. And that was the first thing I noticed when I started taking is that I could sleep through the night because that is, you know, a huge part of, of the stage of life is waking up in the middle of the night, which maybe is nature's way of having grandmothers take care of, of toddlers so parents could sleep and get work done, but. So just a little note about
0: progesterone and the effects of that. Dr. Platt, uh, who we had on the show, uh, who is a a hormone specialist, talked a lot about that. And he is a big proponent of putting pretty much all men and women over the age of 50 on progesterone. And one of the big reasons is that sleep. And he, he ties it all in with the blood sugar cycle of how that works and how the progesterone actually helps lower the blood sugar and prevent... Uh, crashes and, and it's a whole thing. We did a whole episode on it if people are interested in it. But yeah, that that is definitely an effect that it has, is helping you sleep through the night and not wake up.
1: So when my relationship fell apart, it was the most dramatic thing that had ever happened because first of all, he was the love of my life. Um, we talked all day long about things, um, but also we had moved from California to North Carolina and built this epic homestead on raw land. It was, you know, so so intense and and then so it led me on this discovery about relationships like like did did we fail and I discovered that right around four and a half years of cohabitation it's really about the cohabitation um is is when most people reported feeling like brother and sister and and not really having an urge to kiss not really Feeling like massaging each other, needing more space in bed, and I believe that's the time that the the um, serotonin transitions to the to the oxytocin dominant phase. So you become more like like family, and it's a very comfortable feeling. And you still love them. It's just that there's not this desire to touch them.
0: Um, yeah, and, and you know, go ahead then no, please continue.
1: So and, and my hypothesis is that at four and a half years is basically the time that if if you... Ha- so I, I know tons of people who got pregnant right at six months before, uh, six months after meeting each other. So that's like the dopamine phase. And it seems like that's when your body is most um, primed to to get pregnant. Because by six months, you definitely know that the person is not you know, it's basically compatible, but you aren't already sick of them and annoyed with them. So you still have plenty of, of like juice. Um, and then if you did get pregnant at six months, it would basically be four years. Your child is four years old. And that's the time when you would naturally, um, the child is in our sort of, evolutionary environment running around in the village being taken care of by the older kids like that was our natural state in the village not like you know everyone has their kid up under them all the time and you have to play with them entertain them so by by four they're sort of running around by themselves and don't need to be carried and at that point your body's like okay time to mix your genes with another person
0: yeah that's interesting I love this discussion because, so, you know, Celine and I, having coached a lot of people over the years, plus our own personal experience, plus, you know, all of our friends watching them bounce in and out of relationships, there is a definite pattern that we recognized over all of that time. And that pattern goes something like this. And it's, it's you know, timing is is not exact in every relationship, but it sure. follows this rough pattern, which is, people get together and it's amazing for about the first year and a half to two years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when you're in that, you know, addicting chemical phase, right? That's where the serotonin is flowing and you guys can't get enough of each other and you just want to fuck everywhere all the time and everything's great and they can do no wrong and they're the most amazing person you've ever met, right? What they call the honeymoon phase in, in any relationship. Then after that dies down, After that, roughly one and a half to two years, then things start to change in the relationship. And then most people spend about the next two years ish trying to make it work, right? And and this is where a lot of people come to us, right? Now they're in this, we're trying to make it work, right? We're trying to figure out how to keep this going and how to get back what we had in the beginning. And so then usually somewhere between year four and year, the beginning of year five, they end up breaking up. And that is because they realize that they're not actually compatible. But why didn't they break up sooner? Well, because for the first two years, they were under the uh, guidance of the chemicals for the next yes. two years, they were trying to figure out what the hell to do. And then at some point, yeah. one of the two gives up and it's just like, that's it. And you know, this was a pattern that we, Celine and I, had noticed even in our own lives. Because prior to us being together, neither of us had ever had a relationship last longer than five years. We both each had one or two that got to that mark before it fell apart, but it never we never made it past 5 years. So so when her and I made it past the 5 year mark, we actually did a big celebration. We we're like, "Woo! Yeah. <laughs> so we broke the pattern. Something's different in this relationship." <laughs> but, you know, it, well, in our case, uh we never lost that honeymoon phase in 7 years. It, mm. it never went away, mm. which was amazing. Mm. And we kind of looked at you know well what do we do like how are we able to do it where other people aren't able to do it and we mm-hmm. we used that as the pattern to create a lot of what we teach couples now and so if you know listeners who've been mm-hmm. listening to the show for a long time you've heard us talk a lot about what we call the constant state of arousal and how to keep that intimacy going and and how to mm-hmm. keep like keep stoking that fire throughout so that you mm-hmm. never you never lose it but that doesn't work for everybody simply because some people are so blinded by the chemicals that they're mm. not in a relationship that is healthy for both parties. And you're never going to be mm. able to fix that no matter, no matter how hard you try. If you chose badly mm. to begin with, because you were so blinded by the chemicals in the attraction, the only way mm. that's ever going to end up is crash and burn.
1: Yeah. I almost believe in some kind of destiny where some people are just like are are meant to find each. Other. I know it sounds really cheesy, but like that that there's some work to do together. Like you and Celine had this this coaching work and these these podcasts, and and maybe that's why you were able to maintain it. Is that that was really what one of the reasons that you that you came into life for? You know, maybe that's what what enables some some couples to do it. But some people maybe are are actually wired differently. Like there are different genes that are turned on in people who tend to be more monogamous. And they're actually finding now, surprisingly, this book called um, What Do Women Want? The New Science of Female Desire, that men are actually more able to maintain monogamy than than women, contrary to popular belief. (laughs) Uh, Maybe because men have slightly more sexual desire in the first place. Um, But yeah, I think some people are yeah, that, that was the finding of that. I'll have that to book. check
0: out that book because uh, I'm curious to hear that research. Because basically, you know, what, what they usually say when you're talking about the biology of, of men and women is, is they'll say this. They'll say that because women have a bigger investment in raising children, right? So basically they need the help of a man and they also have this genetic uh, predisposition towards finding the best DNA they can get from a man, right? That that you'll often see women will go out and have sex with the big muscular badass guy, but then they'll tell the the other guy who's not really quite as attractive, uh, but who will stick with them and provide for them that he's the father, right? So that, that's they'll tell you that that's women's main drive and desire. And then they'll say on the other side that men's main drive and desire is spread your seed as far and wide as you can have sex and impregnate as many women as you can, but don't stick around and take care of them because you need to go out and impregnate other women. That's the general narrative. So I'd be really curious to know if they have some new research that maybe uh, counters that a little bit.
1: Yes, and and I want to just interject about that story, is that it's important to note that, that while that is valid within a patriarchal culture, like ours, ours is sort of a reformed, feminized, feministed patriarchy, but that's the patriarchal narrative of evolutionary biology, um, it really is only relevant within patriarchy, and that wasn't relevant within our evolutionary environment, please excuse the parrots, um, because from my research, I've written a book called *Before War*. Um, it's about the origins of, of marriage, um, male dominance, oppression, social hierarchy, um, and European people, which are all stories that are tied in. Um, we weren't monogamous for our evolutionary past. The evidence for that is a book called *Sex at Dawn*, of course, which yeah, of goes course. into that That's we've bestseller all read. about. I'm sure we've all read about uh, you know the way the penis is shaped and the way that that there's the sperm is is designed for sperm competition, which indicates that in our primeval environment, women were having sex with multiple males within one menstrual cycle, and that m- male biology is is intended to actually kill rival sperm and remove rival sperm from her reproductive tract. So, and from my research you know, in, in hunter-gatherer times, as well as agricultural times, women were at the center of society and they didn't need men to provide for them. The whole clan provided for the whole clan. Um, women raised children, You know, re- re- remained with their sisters and mothers and grandmothers and that and, and as well, their, their brothers were a hu- played a huge role in, in raising the children and fatherhood was actually not recognized. Um, it was a promiscuous environment in which there was no concept of, of who was fathering the children. And so, therefore, this whole narrative around providing is really a a modern thing, modern as in the last 5,000 years, which hasn't really affected our biology, except that balls have gotten a little smaller um, because of all of this um, monogamy. Um, Ball size is really related to to promiscuity. So bonobo males, bonobos, you know, are, are extremely promiscuous animals, so they have very big balls. Whereas... Gorillas have very small balls because male gorillas, they fight it out in the physical as opposed to on the sperm level um, and the alpha takes all. So all of that narrative is, is, is really not relevant. And, and, part of the problem beneath it is, is that like, if men are going out and spreading their seed, who are they doing it with? <laughs> if
0: the women well, are that's, all that's always the know? other end of it. Right. You know, it's like, so, you know, a slightly different narrative. Right. But when they're like, Oh, these women, they're, they're all sluts. Right. Well they can't be sluts unless they're having sex with guys. Right. You know, somebody else. So does that mean that they're not sluts? Right. So the, the it's just a funny aside, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, obviously if they're spreading their seed far and wide, they have to be spreading it with somebody. Right.
1: So, you know, people are cheating. Um and and I mean, yeah, this this book basically says that that, you know, women get really tired of it and, and it makes sense that if we only have a couple of shots to have children that our bodies might be urging us to to, to mix it up um, with different men,
0: yeah, um, so that's kind of the idea behind it that's a it's a whole other yeah. fascinating discussion because now we're leaving so much we're we're starting to depart a little bit from the here's what our our biology is driving us to, and we're getting a little bit into here's how the societal structures that we create. Influence how we behave sexually because there is a big influence there. There's, I don't know if it was in Sex at Dawn, I might have been in. I've read so many of these books over the years, I can't remember which one said which, but one of them was basically saying that men are as um, faithful as their opportunities allow, right? So, like in some cultures, they didn't have very many opportunities, and so, hey, this one woman here, and I'm going to be monogamous with her, whereas in others, especially if they were prominent, wealthy, you know, some sort of ruling class, you know, king or something like that, they had far more opportunities, and so, therefore, they had sex with a lot more women, and that that's just the societal structure dictating what's possible. And you're right, there have been societies that were far more matriarchal where the women really banded together, there was no such thing as fatherhood. So, yeah, all of that really shapes, or at least shaped back then, how people showed up. Um, And it's a fascinating story. I I got to hang out with the author of Sex at Dawn for a while and have some really cool uh, personal conversations about him and his work. And, you know, he never set out to write a book that proved that polyamory was actually a thing. That was not his goal oh. at all. Wow. So in the poly community, people think that, oh, this is, this is like one of the Bibles of poly because there's science behind the fact that we want to have sex with multiple people. Therefore, look, we're legit, you know. But that was never his intention in, in writing it. And in, in fact, he wrote it, the first version of it, originally as a thesis paper. And only turned it into a book quite a bit further down the road when people were like, you got to turn this into a book. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a fascinating story. It's a great book. It's worth a read. It'll probably shift most people's perspective, especially if if all they're really used to is the monogamous perspective. But since today's show is mostly about biology and less about culture, I want to shift a little bit... um, because we got a couple things to, to get in before the show finishes up, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, what 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 kind of changes can people expect when their hormones shift, and then I want to talk a little bit about uh, what we can do about these changes. Because I love I love to leave people with solutions. Like you know, here are things that you can do, and that's where you can really talk about your experience with your hormone replacement therapy. And then we're going to leave about five minutes at the end talk about penises, because it's just fun. Okay. (laughs) So let's start with, you know, what, what types of things can people expect, both men and women, as their hormones start shifting, like, for whatever reason, I mean, generally... The big shifts are due to aging, but they can be due to other things. They can be due to health problems. They can be due to the environment that we live in nowadays. I mean, that's also causing uh, testicles to shrink and uh, testosterone levels to go down and all that. So, but, but Also, like, prescription drugs are oh, a huge one. Right. Yep. That's another one. So, like, what, will, what could people expect to experience when that happens?
1: I mean, I haven't been on this journey with a man while it's been happening to me since my relationship did split up. I've had some short relationships since then, but, um, I mean, for myself, it was, there was just this this huge plummeting of desire, um, to the point where I didn't even want to masturbate and I was almost afraid to masturbate because I was, it was dry and it, I almost couldn't even reach orgasm. And normally... I can reach orgasm within literally five seconds if it's been a couple days. Um, so I was sort of dreading it, and and I noticed that I became really uptight about sex because because I didn't desire it. I was felt disgusted by sexual scenes in movies, and I kind of came to this point of like, okay, so maybe this is it, like. I had sex for the last time. I don't even really remember when that was. Was that my last time ever? Like, am I just going to be alone now? And, um, and then, you know, I started having these thyroid problems. If, and and I noticed wrinkles appearing on my hands, I'm sure they're on my face too, but I didn't spend a lot of time looking at my face, but I could look at my hands and I thought I wasn't going to be vain. And still it's a, it's a, It's a moment to to, to look at yourself aging, even if you want to tell yourself intellectually that you're more than just your youth and your beauty, which I I do believe, but I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for the thyroid problems, uh, heart palpitations and things like that. And that's what really drove me. And all of that went away. And within three weeks of taking my first pellet, I was horny like beyond what it was like in the last days of my fertility. It was so intense that I made a fool of myself.
0: (laughs) Oh, do tell. Come on, (laughs) share a story or two.
1: (laughs) I mean, well, okay. So it was, it was sort of like just post lockdown. And so there wasn't a lot going on socially. And here I was locked down at home, like, Oh my God, I'm going to jump out of my skin. So all the people that I could, all the guys I could think of that I was attracted to, I basically messaged like, hey, what are you doing? Like, I want you. (laughs) And that was, and that's when I discovered, I have a theory that while men might say like they want to be pursued and it would be really nice not not to have to do the approaching and they want to be approached, that's worked for me 0% of the time.
0: Oh, I know why that is. It it, it Do you want to that? just just quickly it's it's a polarity thing. So it, it when women so when women start really pursuing men, that's because they're more in their masculine right and so there's you get a lack of polarity there because you get two masculines together instead of you know one feminine one masculine i don't want to go down that road too too deeply but but that is then that's that's a big problem that you see when these hormone shifts happen because women when they start being more dominated by testosterone they get more into their masculine hence the i want to fuck i want to get shit done i'm focusing on my career like that and then the guys when their testosterone levels are dropping they're like oh, you know, I just, I want to cuddle more. I want to get to know women more. I want to take it slower, blah, blah, blah. And then you end up with no polarity between the two of them because they're both kind of almost in the same, in the same zone. And and that just wrecks it. You see a lot of relationships break up when, uh, you know, they've been married for 25 years because they hit that point and there's no polarity anymore.
1: Yes. But I had so much energy. I I felt like a million bucks. I felt like I climbed mountains and, you know, all my, my thyroid problems went away. Like my body pain went away. I just felt amazing. Um, a lot more body hair I noticed, which, you know, um, and so, you know, I think I kind of ruined some of those friendships. I live in kind of a small town, Asheville, North Carolina. And, and, uh, I think it's still awkward with some of those guys that I reached out to. Um, and then, around two and a half months later, it started to subside, and I noticed I stopped thinking about sex every couple seconds, and um, stopped being as wet, stopped masturbating so much, and and the same cycle repeated itself. You know, you do you take a pellet every three months, and the same thing happened. Luckily, the second time I was traveling in Europe, and um, I love European guys, and I was using Bumble, and I had a really good ratio of of right swiping and um that was a lot of fun Um,
0: (laughs) i imagine if you i don't know what the average age of the guys in the town where you live that you were reaching out to is but i imagine if they were say somewhere in their 20s they wouldn't have had a problem with it they probably got offended because they were older
1: (laughs) i I think they just there's so much conditioning around that um, the, the odd thing is it's, it's like guys who are like right about 22, I can feel like their lust um, mm-hmm. towards me, even at my age. Like it, it's almost like nature wants us to get together at that, at that polarity of, of older women and younger men. And it's the same thing with older men and younger women who also have kind of matched sex drives. Um, I think it's nature's way of, of allowing us to, to trade sort of, wisdom and experience for that those youthful hormones because I realize that like sometimes I don't even in order to maintain my my youth and and my sexual desire I don't even need to have sex even if I just get together with a guy and I'm within eight inches of him I can feel that sort of if if I'm attracted to him and he's still sort of youthful and has or has his his testosterone up I can feel all of that juice and that's something that, that that um What's his name, the, the Indian guy who fought for, um, fought for Indian independence? Gandhi? He, he talked about how Gandhi. he would, what? Gandhi? He, he just wanted to like lay next to young women, and that was how he maintained his youth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there is, you know, our, our, our pheromones are actually interacting with our hormones in this way that we don't even, you know, recognize or understand. I think if if we just have compassion for ourselves and we understand that we're physical beings, then we can sort of work with that, like like not get down on ourselves with, with that relationship downturn that happens with, with oxytocin when we lose our sexual desire. If we understand that that's a possibility, we can instead of like getting down ourselves and saying what's wrong with ourselves, you know, we can follow some of those guidelines that you can out for couples and, and, and not kind of spiral down.
0: Knowledge is power, basically. Yeah, a- absolutely. And y- y- you got to love Mexico. There's parrots in the background, dogs barking. Uh, I apologize to the audience who has to listen to dogs barking. I know that really does not make for easy listening. But some things in some places are just a little out of our control. But, um, yeah, so... That whole idea of being able to be satisfied without actually even having sex, that's like a super advanced skill. Def- definitely something they teach you in Tantra, right? How to move that energy and how to feel really like satisfied without ever having an orgasm or even possibly any sort of penetration. that That's a super advanced skill, but totally possible just for those listening out there that that is indeed possible. Um, so let's, let's shift gears for a little bit because we are getting very close to the end of this show. Oh. I want to leave the listeners with some things that they can do to help them if they are experiencing these changes. And so I have a, a short list here I'm going to go through. Feel free to add anything you want to add into this list. But the first thing is, is um, you really need to learn how to take care of yourself, right? So number one, you got to get enough sleep not sleeping really massively throws off your hormone levels, right? Because that sleep time is super critical for your body to readjust and repair and rest and all of those things that you need in order to have, you know, a healthy functioning body with proper hormone levels. So you got to make sure that you're sleeping enough. You got to make sure that you're exercising. And this is a big one for, I mean, it's big for both men and women, but it's a huge one for men when their testosterone levels are dropping. Yes, they're going to drop when you get older, no matter what. But another big reason why they drop is because as you get older, you tend to be less active. And this is a thing that I try to help men with all the time, which is like, look, you think that a lot of what you're experiencing is simply because you're older. But half the time I'm the same age as you, I don't experience those things, right? But I'm physically active. I weight train five days a week. I mountain bike. I rock climb. I do martial arts, right? So I'm moving a lot and I'm doing strength training. And all of those things will actually stimulate your body to produce more testosterone. So you want to make Mm -hmm. sure that you exercise. By the way, also men... um, if you have that sort of classic spare tire around the middle, you know, that a lot of, uh, you know, 40 plus men have, do you know what that's a sign of? Excess estrogen. That is Um, why you end up with that spare tire because your testosterone levels are dropping and your estrogen levels are probably not only, you know, where they used to be, but potentially higher because of all the exposure to phytoestrogens and xenoestrogens in your food and in your environment, right? Right. So that's a whole other topic we don't have time to go into today, but that's artificially pumping your estrogen levels up, right? So now you want to cuddle a lot. You're not as interested in sex and you got a spare tire. I guess maybe it's okay because with that spare tire, less women want to have sex with you anyway. So, (laughs) Sorry, guys, but it's true. All right, next one. Eat a balanced diet. This is also super important. The foods you eat will massively affect the hormones in your body, especially staying away from... So when we say xenoestrogens, we're talking about chemical estrogens, things found in plastics, right? That are going to bump up your estrogen levels. And then when we say phytoestrogens, we're talking about estrogens in certain foods, like naturally occurring plant-based estrogens. All right, here's another one, guys. Explain. Don't. Like soy, actually. Absolutely. And another one that guys don't want to hear, beer. Oh, sorry, guys. You drink a lot of beer. You're you're exposing yourselves to extra, extra uh, phytoestrogens. So, you know, and of course, obviously, beer drinkers tend to have that uh, that gut, that excess spare tire around the gut, too. So get enough sleep, exercise, eat a balanced diet, and then we were just talking about this, remove the environmental hormone disruptors. You would be amazed if you really looked into everything from the deodorant you're using to the skincare products you're using to the foods that wow. you're eating to the containers, the plastic containers your food comes in or the, or the plastic you're storing your food in. Your, your plastic, uh, you know, Ziploc, this, that, saran wrap, that, you know, all that stuff is literally leaching xenoestrogens into your food and water, which are affecting your hormone balance. So you want to make sure that you try to remove as much of that as possible. This is true for both men and women, by the way. Um, These things will uh, affect, I mean, especially imagine, right, you're a woman who has Um, estrogen dominance, which is genetic, and now you're also adding all these extra estrogens on top of that, think about how much that's going to whack you out, right? So, and then lastly is the hormone replacement therapy, and that's something that you personally have experience with. I don't at this point yet, uh, which is interesting for me, in, in my point of view, the last time that I had uh, my testosterone levels checked, they were actually considerably low. And I was really quite surprised about that based on how, one, how physical I am. And two, how, I mean, like, you know, one of the things that Celine always loved, uh, you know, in our relationship, she would laugh about it all the time. She's like, all I have to do is suggest the idea of sex or like just shake my ass at you and you immediately have an erection and you're ready to go, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that's always been that way my entire life. It's never been an issue. It's like, ooh, hot woman. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm up and ready to go. So I I don't know, maybe I should probably have that test done again because um, they're not always that accurate to begin with, but Anyway, from my point of view, regardless of what the test said, I figured like, you know, I feel good. I'm feeling strong. I'm still super active. I'm still plenty horny and I can fuck anytime I want for as long as I want. So I'm feeling like I don't really need it. The only thing that sometimes would be nice is, you know, like because I'm involved in the fitness uh, world a bit too. Like I see all these guys that all these guys over 40 that have big muscle, they are all either on hormone replacement therapy or flat out illegal steroids, and they admit it. They they admit it. But but now that you can actually get hormone replacement therapy, a lot of these guys are going to their doctors and getting their doctors to give them the largest dose that the doctor can legally give them, and they are packing on tons of muscle. I, You know, it's never been easy for me to put on a lot of muscle, but sometimes i look at that and I'm like, I wish I could make the gains that those guys make. But without that chemical help, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. But anyway, I
1: find that a turn off if that helps.
0: Well, yeah, I don't want to be like giant, but you know, a little (laughs) extra would be nice. (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh, yeah some of those guys is kind of ridiculous it's like you can't even scratch your own ass because your arms are stuck <laughs> like this <laughs> uh so anyway i i haven't felt the need to go there yet one of the things they do say and i don't know if this is true about women you you might know better than i do but uh I have been told that for, uh, the doctors basically tell these guys that once they go on testosterone replacement therapy, that they're pretty much going to be on it for the rest of their life.
1: Because they they lose the ability to produce it for themselves?
0: Yeah, that's, that's what they say. Now, there are some people that dispute that, but that is pretty much what the medical literature says. And that's why... When some of these guys go to the doctor and the doctor, you know, their, their levels are borderline, the doctor, a lot of times, if they're a good doctor, doesn't want to put them on uh, testosterone replacement therapy for that exact reason. So, cause like, well, like if I do that, you know, because the body's, body looks at it and basically says, okay, I got enough, why do I need to produce it, Right. And people think that it's going to continue to produce whatever it's producing. And then this is just going to be on top of that. And apparently that's not the case. I don't know if it's the same for women or not. That's an interesting question.
1: Well, I will say that after the first two cycles, um, I didn't have those effects anymore of becoming extremely horny and having tons of energy. Unfortunately, that's kind of a temporary result.
0: Well, that's that's probably good because <laughs> it's probably not super Great. sustainable. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, especially if your your goals in life are more than just a whole bunch of one night stands, which you know, exactly. you know. I mean, if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you know that the real magic of life happens when you get into a really deep, deep amazing relationship. That's where the real magic happens. And so the one night stands can be fun, but they are never as fulfilling as a deeply connected relationship. Okay. Anything you want to add real quick about what people could do if they're experiencing any of these hormone things? And then we're going to give a couple of minutes to penises.
1: Um, I liked everything that you said. I haven't really deeply researched it, but like I was saying about about just being like in close contact with somebody that you have an attraction to, like if that's something that could be okay with your, your relationship, not even, you know, being polyamorous or something, but just allowing yourself to have that little flirtation um, or just leaning into that person and feeling that, that dynamic polarity. I think just that alone really sparks the hormones and it's, it's harmless. You know, you're not, exchanging fluids it's it's just it, in, in some sense your body doesn't even know the difference um although you know sex is actual penetration is a difference so i think just that dynamic flirting and allowing yourself to fantasize it's just natural and then sublimating that energy bringing it you know using um Taoist techniques uh, the microcosmic orbit you're you're sort of moving that energy throughout your body um and then bringing that
0: energy to your partner, you know? Yeah. So that, that is a really great point. So just super quick on that. You know, a lot of times couples are like, I don't want you flirting with that woman or that man or doing this or doing that. And one of the things that that Selena and I always used to say is like, as long as they're not acting on it behind your back, I mean, obviously if you have an arrangement and there's, there's agreements, that's fine. But as long as they're not acting at it, why wouldn't you want them to do that and then bring all of that energy back to you? Right, like imagine you know your man is is out somewhere and you know he gets all charged up by this you know beautiful woman that he meets that day and then he comes home and fucks the shit out of you. Wouldn't you want that? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think It's natural. But but it does and, and re- yeah it,
1: is.
0: it does require a certain amount of trust. Right. So
1: we are we are also naturally jealous. Um, but I think that can also kind of re spark the spark too. If you see your partner flirting with someone and that other person is giving them a lot of juice, you're like, Oh, my partner's hot.
0: And that, <laughs>
1: you know, that helps.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Every, everybody, well, I, 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 don't know about everybody, but most people I think would want their partner to be seen as hot. Like, yeah, of course. Like, Yeah. Look at my partner, you know? Okay. We are definitely running out of time, and I do want to give a few, uh, a few moments because, you know, we told the listeners we were going to talk about it. We can't not talk about it. So you got into doing uh, lingam massage, and, you know, our audience should be somewhat familiar with this, but just in case you're not, lingam is a term for penis. And so apparently you have seen quite a few penises. You were doing this in a place that was very international. What did you learn about penises from around the world? Come on, spill it.
1: <laughs> and and then I traveled through Europe with it um, and, and just noticing the differences in, in different countries. Um, well, I mean... Tantra has has different words, like animal words for different sized penises, like the giraffe. I forget which ones they are, you know, different sizes. And it's, they're meant to fit with different sized um, yonis, as they say in, in the Kashmiri tradition, the, the, the female yoni. Um, so it's not really about like just a big cock. It's, it's about the one that actually is suited for your size, Um, And I noticed that girth makes a lot more difference than length in a certain sense. Um, And then the way, you know, some some really curve left, some really curve right, um, those make a really big difference. Um, And there's, you know, like in in the Netherlands, for example, there's, it's such an open-minded culture, you know, everything's legal and they're just kind of like have a very practical approach toward it. Um, they just seemed like completely unembarrassed by the whole situation. Um, got an erection was, you know, they're, they're very straightforward about it. Whereas like Greek men, you know, they have a lot of, they seem to have a lot of like shame around it. They wouldn't get erection right away. And so what I do is, is, um, work on the belly. I do qi which is a Chinese abdominal massage, and it can be very painful. You're releasing deep blocks, um, In the abdomen and and sort of in the organs, and then sort of then the the penis will get soft, and I'll go back to the penis and and do, you know, even work on the balls. And there are these sort of stretching techniques and these these therapeutic methods of working with it. Um, But then I noticed that you know most most guys get hard just with those methods of manipulation. But then older men who had 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 a lot of different sort of Pharmaceuticals and stuff, they actually needed some type of, of turn on. And usually I was in a very professional state. Um, I didn't let them touch me, but occasionally with a guy that really couldn't get hard and, and, and was obviously very depressed, like I would turn around and let him s- slap my butt and, you know, kind of, I just w- would find ways of figuring out how to make it hard while at the same time telling them it's not about being hard, like we could actually have a totally relaxing um, therapeutic session with you being totally soft. And that was part of what I was doing was allowing them to break the conditioning in their mind around this is an erection, it leads to ejaculation and instead sort of flow from different states of hard to soft. But of course the biggest difference is around circumcision. Unfortunately, you know, the foreskin does play a role in lubrication. So I noticed that with European men that were circumcised, I didn't need as much coconut oil and I didn't need as much stimulation. They were, it, it, was, it was sort of easy to bring them to ejaculation if that was the goal, which wasn't always the goal. Sometimes it was sublimation, but, um, it's just, you know, it's just beautiful to see all of the variety, um, that, that that men bring, you know,
0: and I think they're all really beautiful. So, so some of that, uh, you know, with the older men needing more of a, a turn on, basically that ties into everything we were talking about today, which is, you know, with the lower testosterone levels, uh, they're not instantly getting hard like they would when they were young, so they need more mental stimulation to, to help out. So that's interesting that that ties into what we were talking about. But also, okay, now I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you some questions. And I understand that these are only your personal preferences, but having seen penises from all around the world, favorite country of penises, which is it?
1: Well, um, I like hybrid ones. Like my favorite one was like, he was half German and half Palestinian. Um, and it was really, it was really long and, and skinny. I, I don't know, German, something about German guys.
0: All right. All right. So German or potentially mixed. Great. Um, all right. So penises, sometimes they point left, sometimes they point right, sometimes they point up. Which is your favorite uh, tilt?
1: I think for the ones that are the kind of really go go straight instead of up it had mm. to
0: work for me. Okay, straight up. See, then this is this is why it's great. So, like, you know, Celine would always say that she loved penises that curved up a little bit because they would just hit mm. her in just the right spot. Those were her favorite. Mm. So you like ones that are more straight? Um, Maybe because
1: to the cervix and I'm kind of trying to get to that cervical orgasm, that holy grail of female orgasm.
0: Yeah, 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 you could. So I know... <laughs> So for, for us, and again, you were totally right before when you were saying that, you know, different penises are meant to fit with different vaginas, and that's absolutely true. And so sexual compatibility is really important, which is why you shouldn't wait until you get married to have sex because then you don't know if you're sexually compatible, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but for Celine and I, so I tend to point up but I'm also long enough that Mm. I can reach her cervix. And so depending on different positions, I could pretty much hit any spot in her that she wanted. I could, you know, hit the G spot just right, you know, hit her cervix, especially at a certain time of month, uh, depending on the, I mean, yeah, it just, it just worked. We were very sexually compatible that way. All right. Mm. Um, So favorite size as far as length and girth.
1: I've never measured
0: so i don't oh, just I don't roughly know. <laughs> like you can say While well, i prefer them a bit because some women will say i don't like them too long like because it hits the cervix all the time throughout their entire cycle and it's uncomfortable some women will say oh i prefer a bit more girth like i don't know
1: i prefer some girth but it could definitely be too thick too thick can definitely be a problem too thick and too long can can you know make it a little overwhelming and uncomfortable yeah. so maybe i would Maybe that's
0: eight inches and and kind of like this. okay. Well, so just so you know, I'm sure you already know this. but eight inches is a, is a very long penis. When the average male penis is five inches long, oh. Eight inches is like, yeah, you're talking probably top 1% of men out there that have a penis okay. eight inches long. I was thinking that,
1: I was thinking that not, yeah, no, I, I actually haven't thought about this for a long time.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sort of putting you on the spot about it. Uh, let's see, what else? What else? Oh, by, by the way, so, I mean, first of all, a lot of guys think it's great to have a big penis. I have talked with numerous men who have large penises, and honestly, most of them will tell you it's a burden. Because there's women that don't want to have sex with them because it's too big. They can't have really like vigorous sex. They can't penetrate, you know, fully be like, you know, they still got an inch or two of their penis that, that can't go any further. Um, you know, yeah. women end up sometimes in pain and it's just, it's not all that it's cracked up to me. So then the yeah. other thing is sometimes guys say, well, it doesn't need to be that long, but girth, I need some girth. Now, okay, a little bit of girth, but I'm going to challenge you on, on that one too, men, because the reality is is if the woman has strong toned uh, vaginal wall muscles, if, if her muscles are toned, it doesn't matter how girthy it is. She's just going to squeeze those muscles and she will squeeze you tight no matter what. Any other questions I can ask you about penises? Uh, hmm, hmm, hmm. Here's a question for you around penises. Um, Did you notice any difference in testicle size in different uh, countries?
1: No, I think it's sort of an individual variation. Mm Mm-hmm. And and you know, I didn't I didn't experience very many African or Asian penises, so that's you, probably a whole You
0: you, you might know, have to schedule some that. tours, an Asian tour, an African tour. <laughs> 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 Wait until you get another another um, uh, hormone replacement uh, in palette and then maybe schedule a tour. <laughs> I'm I'm just teasing you. All right. Well, we are, we are actually about 10 minutes over the time. I try to keep these podcasts about oh. an hour. Um, but I just, I really wanted to talk about that, uh, penis stuff at the end. Cause I thought it would be really fun. Um, Alicia, I want to thank you for being on the show and sharing your own personal experience and your knowledge.
1: Thank you for having me. It was really fun
0: and all right everybody that's all we have for this episode you know as I do these episodes with guest hosts if you like the guest host let me know say something in the comments uh, send me a message via the website and uh, maybe we will have them back on the show all right everybody that's all the time we have for this episode and I will see you next week